0: Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right. Good morning, Mercy Church. Hey, we are in a brand new sermon series this morning. where We're going to be looking at the life of an Old Testament figure named Daniel. So if you've got your Bible, make your way over to the book of Daniel. I think it's after Ezekiel, before Hosea, um, you know, a few books further than where we were in the Psalms. Listen, the reason we're going into Daniel is because this event, the events of his life, which happened 2,600 years ago and were written down in God's Word, remains one of the most relevant stories, one of those relevant spots in Scripture to our day and age, and I believe especially relevant to Christians who are living um, here in Charlotte. This book is going to show us the story of a small group of friends who grew up in the community of Israel. You know, they they grew up as a part of God's people, but then where our story picks up, we find them, Daniel and his three friends, living as exiles in a foreign land. And in this land, nobody uh, nobody else operates by the same faith system that they do. And so they're trying to figure out now where they once were a part of the cultural majority, right, as a part of God's people. They were there with their family. Now they're in this whole new land, and and no one ascribes to this God that they've spent their whole life worshiping, right? And they're trying to figure out how do we live in this moment? And y'all, the reason we're digging into this is because right now we're in a new cultural moment. Over the last 200 years, you could say really since the Enlightenment, but definitely in the last four or five decades here in the United States, the ground beneath our feet has begun to shift. For quite some time, our country had a sort of, if you will, a Christianized culture where Christian values and principles just kind of ran parallel right alongside with public life. It was culturally normative to be a Christian, to attend church, and to kind of operate by biblical values. It was often called the Judeo-Christian ethic, right? But then the ground shifted. American culture became a, a mix of Christian and pagan values with the rise of the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. You guys may remember there was a song, The Age of Aquarius, right? And in this song, The Age of Aquarius, what they said was all these old systems are being torn down and there's a new age, the age of Aquarius, and they were right. It is, it was a whole new age. And, and then over the past 30 years, culture has shifted again to where now we're operating in what most social critics will call a, a post Christian society, where you no longer really need to ascribe to Christian values to be accepted in the public sphere. Sunday morning isn't like you got to go to church, you know, it's just one of the things that are available to do. Now, I want to be clear it's not that true Christianity has gone away or something like that. No, what's gone away and what's, what's fastly going away is kind of the, the nominal cultural Christianity. Let me explain it um, the way Russell Moore, I wanna give you a quote from him. He's the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission. And in his inaugural address a few years ago, here's the way he said it. He said, the Bible belt is collapsing. The world of nominal cultural Christianity, the world that took the American dream and then sprinkled Jesus in, added Jesus to it in order to say, you can have everything you've ever wanted, and heaven too. That is soon to be gone and good riddance. So as Christians, we are now strangers and aliens in a foreign land. The culture at large sees our way of life as strange. I mean, think of just, for example, our belief that um, God made sex as a gift for a husband and a wife, and to separate that from marriage, we believe is damaging to human flourishing and is even rebellion against God. Now, culture looks at that belief and says, how strange. In fact, it's so strange that the producers of the show, The Bachelor, went and found a a virgin in their mid-twenties and has made him the uh, focus point of the show this year because they, and I don't know the guy's belief system, but it's like, oh, here's a guy um, who has not engaged and he's in his mid-20s, an attractive guy. That's like a unicorn. That's the way they're operating. It's so bizarre, it's worthy of a TV show. And here's the deal, y'all. Daniel is gonna be really helpful in teaching us now that we live on the fringe, how do we respond to this cultural moment? Now, there have been a couple of overreactions by Christians. Uh, it's pretty common. I see two that happen all the time. The first reaction is, all right, well, our views aren't accepted. So here's what we'll do. Uh, we'll just separate from culture, right? And so we'll you can do that physically by moving deep into the Appalachian Mountains and setting up a little commune. But what most people do is they separate From culture by insulating themselves, only going to Christian stores, only drinking Christian coffee, only eating Christian chicken, right? Listening to only Christian music and reading only Christian books, right? That's a way to insulate yourself, get away from it all. The problem, of course, is that Jesus says in John 17, he prays for us and he says, Father, don't take them out of the world. Keep them there in the world and protect them from the enemy. And then he sends all his disciples out. Right? So we know that insulation can't be, that separation from culture can't be what we are called to do in this moment, even if culture doesn't line up with our views. Well, there's another way that Christians often, often err as well, and that's to assimilate into culture. We adapt Christianity to conform with the prevailing values of the day so that we can kind of fit in without causing too much controversy. Right? Assimilation in millennial America looks like this. You know, it's, a, it's go with the flow, update the teachings of Jesus to fit with Western secular worldview, an ethic of relativism and anti-authoritarianism. The problem, of course, is that Jesus also made it clear that his followers would always, at some point or another, be hated by the world. Right. They would be at odds with culture that to follow him is to take up a cross, an execution device, the very one that he was executed on. So assimilation, can't be what we're called to? What if instead, what if instead of of separation or assimilation, we found a calling as being spiritual exiles living inside a foreign land together while we work for the good and healing of our city by remaining faithful to the one true God? We don't panic. We don't wring our hands when culture doesn't line up with our worldview. Instead, we engage and we pray. That's Jeremiah 29 7, right? Where God says, Seek the welfare. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Y'all, the book of Daniel is going to show us what it looks like to live as spiritual strangers in a foreign land. And it's wild. We're calling this series the The lions, the fire, and the faithfulness of God. Because you're going to see Daniel and his friends face the lions and the fire. They're going to take stands because they are first God's people. They seem bound for certain death at least three times that are really obvious, and there's probably more in there. That's the lions and the fire. Yet, they will also be people of great wisdom and influence in the kingdom. And right in the thick of all of it, you're going to see that God, God himself is the main character of the book of Daniel you will see his faithfulness to his people and to his mission is really at the heart of this story. So I hope and pray, here's kind of one of my, my prayers for this series, that this empowers you Christians to a fresh vision for your life and your vocation. And I hope you non-Christians get a, a really clear sense of what we are seeking to do and who we are, what we believe as Christians, not separation or assimilation, but humbly seeking the good of our city while remaining faithful to our God. So today we're gonna walk through chapter one, all right? We're gonna see the first of what will be several tense situations that Daniel and his friends get into, and I think see kind of a, a, really a pattern begin to emerge here that will carry through the entire book, all right? So got your Bible, you're now there, world's longest introduction done, Daniel one. Here we go, verse one. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, Of Judah. There will be a quiz for how you can pronounce these (laughs) names later. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him along with some other vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon to the house of his God and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. All right. I know that I said Babylon a couple of times there. And if you're like, maybe not that new to the, to the Bible, or maybe you're, let me say this, brand new, and you're like, ah, that word freaks me out. What is this? Just calm down. It's just a foreign nation who's come and who's taken God's people captive. That's all that really matters for the moment. We'll see more explained, okay? The first two verses here, one and two, you get the historical context and then the theological explanation. The historical context is there's this really awful king of Judah, King Jehoiakim. He's led his people into decline for a really an extended period of time. And so in about 605 BC, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, lays siege to it and carries off some of Israel's most prized possessions. Now, the theological explanation is at the beginning of verse 2. The Lord handed him over. Kind of a tough opening, right? God's people, God's city is attacked. This is an all-out low point, and somehow... God orchestrated it. God was complicit in this. So what we really see happening is God making good on a promise from long ago where he said if his people didn't obey him, they would be defeated by their enemies. And now God's gonna allow it to happen. And it even gets worse than that. Look at verse three. The king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility. See what that means, right? Like the king's ordering this guy to abduct these children, these young men, and bring them. Verse 4, young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. The king abducts the best and brightest in the land, The intent by old King Neb is to strip God's people of their best and brightest and add them to his ranks. This will help, he thinks, ensure that Israel will remain subordinate to Babylon for generations to come because they'll be without their present and future leaders. He will indoctrinate them and assimilate them into Babylon. Look, he was to teach them, this chief eunuch was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. Among them from the Judites were, here's where our guys come in, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them new names. You see that? He gave the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego. To Azariah. The assimilation was to go so far that their names would be changed. That's how we get Daniel. He and his friends are prisoners away from their families, trying to figure out what in the world life looks like now. And I want you to see what happens to them because I think Christians, we face a modern version of these challenges today. Now, hopefully, our nation doesn't get taken over by a hostile nation and you get sent away, but if you look underneath the surface, you can see some similarities. Look at, look at what happens to these four. Their, their captors do two things. First, they isolate these four from their community, right? They're taken away from everything they know. They're thrust into this foreign place. It makes them more vulnerable to accepting the ideas of their new host culture because they're now in isolation. And then, and then the captors go after indoctrination. I mean, look at it. They go to Babylon University for three years, They're charged with learning language and literature, trained in divination. This is systemic brainwashing. It's trying to get them to remove their previous beliefs in other gods and embrace the new Babylonian worldview. New foods, new lifestyles, even new names. And y'all, new names is a big deal because their names were at the core of who they are. I mean, Daniel, God is my help. Like you keep looking into these, what you're gonna see is their names are very significant. This is not, um, you know, when I got to UNC my freshman year, my uh, roommate comes up to me and goes, hey man, my name's John. I said, hi, I'm Spence. And my dad looked at me and I've been Spencer for 18 years. And in my rebellion, I dropped the R because that's how rebellious I was as a teenager. Um, but that's not, that's not the same thing as what's happening here. No, this is... Uh, This is Babylon saying, out with the old religion of your parents, get with the times. This combination of isolation and indoctrination, it's a military strategy. The the idea was to erase their ties to their former way of life. Our brothers and sisters um, who live in a closed country, uh, I can't even really name it right now, have told us how this This is kind of forced on them the same kind of strategy when their government sends their elementary age children uh, to school on the other side of the island so that they can isolate and indoctrinate their kids. See, here in our culture, I see people wander into this combination voluntarily. You move to college, you have a professor or a series of professors who tries to show you that your parents' religion was just ignorant that it's impossible that there's only one God and only one way to that God? How ignorant is that? How hateful is that? How can you tell me that my religion is wrong and your religion is right? How do you know? And you've never been trained to spot the small-minded hypocrisy of your professor's argument and neither have your friends who are with you and in isolation and indoctrination, you start to say, well, yeah, you know, I don't know. I don't know, you know, I know I believe in God, but... It's gotta be a God who accepts everyone just as they are. Now, of course, not everybody goes off to college, but the same challenge is faced by all of us at some point or another. And in the three years that I've been your pastor, I have got people that my heart breaks over because they were once a part of our church family and now they're gone. They're gone from Jesus. They're gone from true life, not to another church. That'd be fine. So today, you might have a bit of, hear a bit of a tone of warning in it, and that's because eternity is at stake, and I want you to be ready when you face these things. And by the way, the fact that February, uh, that we've just kicked off Black History Month should not be lost on us. I mean, the book of Daniel is a story about a group of people forcibly taken from their land, sent to work for their captors, and then try and figure out how to honor God while in the confusion, pain, and anger of their situation. Does that sound familiar? Our African American brothers and sisters have a rich history of following Christ while being minorities in a majority culture. We, in fact, we have African brothers and sisters in our church who had to free their country years ago, um, flee their country years ago, and are now living here in a foreign land. Y'all listen, I'm a white 36-year-old male. I haven't had to experience minority life, but now my belief system places me in a spiritual minority, which is certainly not the same as being a person of color, but there are some lessons that I can learn from leaning in and listening to Christian voices who have experienced that life. So I'm listening to and reading a lot of voices this month who can relate to Daniel even more than I can, and I'd encourage you to do the same. Uh, Now, listen, I want you to see how Daniel and his friends respond to this moment. This is verse eight. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine he drank, so he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. Now, Daniel's stand on food might be kind of an odd one for you, uh, considering all the things that he's getting. Why food? But there's a high likelihood that the Babylonian food was unclean by Hebrew law standards. So to eat the food would be to disobey a direct order from God. Even if it wasn't that, there's this sense that everything around Daniel, everything he sees is Babylon. Babylon. And if he ingested Babylon, maybe he felt like he'd be just lost for good. He'd never know who he truly was. What we do know is that Daniel determined to take a stand against the king. And that definitely would have consequences, right? There's a cost. Verse nine, God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. Yet he said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king who assigned you your food and drink? What if he sees your faces looking thinner than the other young men your age? You would endanger my life with the king. I want you to underline verse nine. That's the second time we see Daniel making progress because God had granted that progress. Right. God's the one working on Daniel's behalf. The eunuch's looking out for number one. So Daniel comes up with a pretty shrewd plan. He says, listen, just give us vegetables and water for 10 days. It's a new diet. It's called Whole Whole Ten right? And give us 10 days and we're going to see what happens. So he does it. And at the end of 10 days, they look even healthier than the rest of their peers. And so the guard agrees to continue this Daniel plan for the rest of their days under his command. Daniel refused to compromise, refused to defile himself, but the way he did it was very thoughtful, isn't it? And the Lord gave him favor to make that conversation even possible to even go anywhere. Y'all, sometimes we wait on the Lord to show us what to do. And fail to realize that he's the one that's brought us this far. That's right. This book is allowing you to see that God who put you where you are right now. And we're going to come back to this a couple times today. He was faithful to you in putting you where you are right now. And then he will be faithful to you as you seek to obey him where you are. It's no accident. And if you trust him, you'll see him remain faithful again and again. More on that in a minute. Look what happens. Verse 17. God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. Again, look who the main player is. Chapter one is clearly trying to emphasize God's role in the story. God gave them what they need to carry out their purposes in Babylon, 19. So then the king, now they're in front of the big guy. The king interviews them and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to attend the king. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. All these guys get important posts in the kingdom. And Daniel, this is the reason why it says King Cyrus, Daniel held that position for 70 years. For 70 years. He outlived multiple kings of Babylon and was even around when the Jews were released back to Jerusalem from captivity in Babylon. Most historians believe there's a a good chance it was Daniel's influence on King Cyrus, his wisdom his uncompromising character that led Cyrus to release the Jews. 70 years in such a prominent position had the kind of impact we'll never fully know. See, for his whole life, Daniel was a stranger in a foreign land. In writing to the church, the apostle Peter says, We, the church, we are now those strangers living in a foreign land. And that land is whatever land we live in. It's not that our, y'all, it's not that our particular country is Babylon. It's that Babylon represents a foreign kingdom. And the point is, all believers, whether you live in the East or the West, all believers are strangers in their land. Here's what Peter says. This is, um, in, starts in verse 11. It says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day that he visits. Strangers and exiles. We abstain from that which defiles us, yet we do so in a way that leads others to see the glory of God in us. The way St. Augustine describes this is he said there are two cities, the city of God and the city of man. And when we become Christians, our citizenship moves to the city of God. This is now our primary allegiance to the city of God and to its citizens. We adopt our new city's laws, values, and way of life, but we still live for now as temporary residents of the city of man. It's not our homeland, but God says we are to live honorably while we are here so that others might come to know the one true God. So even though we aren't home, we should still be the best residents in the land that we're in. I want you to notice a couple of things from chapter one that I think show us from Daniel's life what it looks like to be obedient to God as strangers and aliens in the foreign land that we live in, Okay. Here's the first one. Trust and look for the faithfulness of God. Verse two, God gave Daniel's people into the hands of old King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse nine, God gave Daniel favor with the chief of the prison. Verse 17, God gave Daniel and his friends knowledge and wisdom far beyond what their peers had. The only reason, the only reason the book of Daniel isn't nine verses long is because God's the one doing everything along the way. Now, I know the most preacher thing to say is God is faithful, okay? Well, listen, first, just because it ain't new doesn't mean you don't need to hear it today, right? In fact, for some of you, that that is the one thing you really need to hear, God is faithful. And for all of us, what we should probably be doing every morning as we wake up in the morning is we say, you know what, today I'm going to remember that God is faithful. I'm going to trust his faithfulness and seek to honor him with my life because I believe he's faithful, But secondly, I want you to see the order of action and then the experience of provision from God, all right, in the story of Daniel. See, Daniel trusts that God is faithful, then chooses to obey God, then experiences God's provision. God's provision, well, I should say, the experience of God's provision comes in response to Daniel's step of faith. So if you want to experience God's provision, you got to take a step of faith. We always want God to provide before we obey. Like God just show me exactly how this is going to work out. And then I'll trust you and I'll take a step. Right? That's not faith. But my kids right now, my kids are into trust falls which is strange, do not encourage this thing that they're in right now, okay? But they're in a trust, you know, trust fall where you kind of, you, you stand on top of something, you cross your arms, and you lean, and you fall back, and you have to trust that someone will catch you. Well, my, the youngest one, uh, she's five, she does it no problem, right? Faith like a child. She trusts that daddy is going to catch her, right? But the older ones, only nine and ten years old, and they're like, hedging their bets and putting their foot down. everything they're struggling to trust uh, whether dad is actually going to catch them. They'll say, I'll say, is dad strong enough to catch you? Yes. But then when it comes to actually trusting that statement, they struggle to do it already. Still trying trying to preserve themselves already. Listen, you want to see God provide? You want to see his faithfulness? Take a step of faith and then watch him work. That relationship you're in that you know is not honoring to God. Take a step. Stop sleeping together, start praying together, move out, watch him work. What step, there's always a step of obedience that God is calling you to in your life. What step is that? Daniel one is here to say, God is faithful. He's faithful, he's working and you can trust him. Here's the second one. Oh, there's so much more I want, I want to tell you about the faithfulness of God and encourage you towards, but we're gonna keep moving. This is something you should dig into with your community group this week. The second one is God works by scattering his people. The second thing you see in Daniel. Notice that Nebuchadnezzar thinks he is bringing over the best and brightest to his worldview. What's actually happening, God is sending his people into Babylon so that the Babylonians will hear about the one true God. See the next chapter, just chapter two, we're gonna see King Nebuchadnezzar bow down and worship the one true God. And in chapter three, we're gonna see him command the whole nation to do the same this is how God works. He sends his people to new people. He sent Jonah to Nineveh. He sends Daniel here. He sends Abraham out. He sends Paul to the Gentiles. And he's sending us even now. He says, Romans 10, faith comes by hearing. So how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news? That's why we say all the time around here, people are the mission. You know, um, Those of you who've been around Mercy for a little while, you know, have been connected with some churches in Cuba who are experiencing just an awesome awakening across the island. Well, it started when the communist regime took over many years ago and rounded up uh, some of the most influential pastors in the country and threw them into prison. I want to read you. um, One of their pastors sent us just some kind of like basically his version of the story. uh, And it's just remarkable to hear. Here's what he said. He said, you know, they're in prison. At the next prison over, they can hear some executions happening. They're terrified. And he says, the pastors gathered together, these guys that have been in prison, to quietly, quietly pray, read scripture, and softly sing hymns. And one day a prisoner asked this pastor, he said, why do you pastors meet together to pray and sing, but never tell us about God? The pastors were so convicted, they began to openly share, with their, uh, share their faith with their fellow prisoners. The government was not pleased with what was happening because a lot of prisoners are coming to faith. So they decided to disperse the pastors across the island to different prisons so that they would stop. But all the government did was to spread the evangelists to prisons across the country. He said, this was the start of the, the first cell churches in Cuba because uh, they were actually in cells. And people say, here's what he said. So people say we can't share the gospel in Cuba. Not true. If we want to share the gospel in the hospital, we go as a patient, in the schools, as a student, in prisons, as prisoners, at work, as workers. The key is to incarnate the gospel. Wherever God takes you, share Jesus without fear. We have no hate. We have no fear. The past is under the blood. The future is in God's hands. What we have is now Cuba para Cristo. Man, y'all, catch this. Sometimes God allows hardships to reach us because he wants his mercy to reach beyond us. That's That's what I hear from these brothers and sisters in Cuba. And the book of Daniel is a story about a missionary who just didn't realize he was a missionary. So maybe you're thinking right now you are in a wasteland period of your life. You are in this, I just got to get through it period of your life. What if you're actually in the perfect, most strategic place possible for carrying out God's mission? Let Fear melt away under the confidence of God's faithfulness. He sent you here and what you have is now. You know, Estados Unidos para Cristo. Here's the third one. And if my Spanish was off, forgive me. So, you know. Um, All right, number three. Resolve to live with uncompromising obedience to God. You see the moments, you catch it where Daniel really steps out. It's going to be repeating all throughout the book. It's in moments where he's asked to do something that would compromise his allegiance to the city of God, to the one true king. So he abstains from the food of the land because it would compromise obedience. Look again, 1 Peter 2.11. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain. To abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Right When sinful desires come, they come to all of us and they wage war on the soul. Ain't nobody saying that it's easy. God calls us to abstain from those, abstain from foolish and corrupting talk, abstain from gossip, which means not laughing. It also means not laughing when others are gossiping. Abstain is a word I think that sounds kind of prudish sometimes. And you can abstain in a way that makes others feel judged, but you can also abstain with humility and kindness. And all I'll say is it's better to abstain from the sinful desires of the flesh and have the favor of the Lord than to compromise so that you can have the favor of man. You figure out what that means for you. I know it means something for all of us. But if your life looks exactly like the world, how will the world see that you belong to a different kingdom? And listen, one other thing I'll say is in a few chapters, Daniel's gonna stand up to the king Um, His confidence in God in this moment is preparing him for those even bigger moments. And another thing in this, Daniel's with three friends. It's not all of his people, but he does have three friends encouraging one another as they're eating veggies and water day in, day out, right? I can't tell you, (laughs) this is not going to, I'm not going to dovetail into a whole thing on community, but you need some friends to be with you and to seek to honor God as strangers and exiles in the land that we live in. Get in Christian community. Yeah. All right, here, the last one. Rest in the finished work of Christ, the greater Daniel. See, so here's, here's the deal, guys. You read this book and what you're going to find, you're going to see that Daniel, he's awesome. I mean, he just, he is. There's not much uh, about Daniel in our story in the way of fatal flaws. You know, he's not the Jonah character. He is a hero. And because of that, you could go through this story, you could go through these six or so weeks that were gonna be in this and just feel burdened because you are not gonna measure up to Daniel. He stands up to three different kings. He does it multiple times. He's a teenage prodigy. He's always praying, right? He is a hero of the faith. And so we think the message of Daniel is, or what, what is often communicated, is that the message of Daniel is be like Daniel. If you can be as good as Daniel, then God will approve of you too. Then you'll have God's favor. And that's a common but very dangerous way to read Daniel. There is a better way. I've tried to tell you anytime we're in the Old Testament, I try to remind you that the whole Old Testament, the purpose of it is to set the stage for Jesus. It is to point you to Jesus. In fact, Jesus sitting around with his disciples, Luke 24, go read it. He says, all of the Old Testament is about me. As he, he tells them this, the purpose of the book of Daniel is to direct us to see Israel's need for a savior. In fact, the whole second half of the book talks about someone called the son of man who will one day save Israel. Jesus is going to refer to himself as that son of man. See, Daniel is a foreshadowing of Christ. Daniel's a young man who goes into a foreign land. When tempted to eat the food of the enemy, he refuses. He spends hours in prayer with the Father. He chooses obedience to God, even when it costs him his life. He's put into a tomb only to come out alive. This is pointing us to Christ, except Christ goes even further. God spared Daniel's life, but Jesus... God did not spare his life so that God could spare our lives. See, in this book, as we read it, you and I, we are not Daniel. Yes, there are some great things we can learn from Daniel. I just showed you several of those. But we are the Babylonians. We are living in a land separated from God, but God sent someone to us. Someone who would be with us, but who would not be exactly like us, who would still hold to what his father taught him. This is Jesus Christ. So let us receive the message of love and mercy where we should get judgment. And when we receive that love and mercy, we become free from the burden of earning God's approval that we could never earn anyways. And then we can read Daniel's life as an encouragement to us to press in, to press in and trust the Lord. And as we do, he will be faithful but his love is not conditional on how well we obey him. So when we fail and we will, we can look at the cross and we can look at the empty tomb. We can thank God again for his mercy today and walk ahead, striving to live as strangers and aliens in a foreign land, worthy of the one who keeps us here. Here's what we're going to do. I want to take a moment And I want us, as you've heard this sort of setup, what you've seen is Daniel saying, I'm not gonna insulate myself. He didn't have a choice. He couldn't insulate himself, right? He's there as a captive, but he also didn't assimilate. And I want us to take a second, and actually a minute or two, and spend some time talking to God and repenting of where we have, where we have separated ourselves from where God has placed us, and where we have assimilated and just chosen the way of the land that we live in. I wanna take some time and turn from that because in the course of this book, what we're gonna see is this wonderful calling we have as the people of God. And I think that begins, I think God beginning to use us, starts with us turning from that and turning back to him. So I wanna take a moment and do that. Would you bow your head, close your eyes? Let me lead you through this time of Repentance. The way you can pray this is pretty simple. First, it's, it's confession. It's saying, God, here it is. Here's where I have insulated myself. Here's where I have assimilated, where I've said, you know what? I'm not gonna abstain. I'm gonna just kind of go ahead and go forward because this is what the rest of the world is doing. And so I'm gonna do that. Let's just take a moment confess your sin to God. Maybe what you need to do, you've never never received God's mercy, God's salvation. Because see, as, as these Christians confess, the next step is to thank God that his love for you is not conditional. It's not conditional on how well you obeyed him today, how well you've been obeying him lately. He loves you and you can turn back to him and receive that love, rest in that love. So if you're not a Christian, here's how you receive that love. You repent of your sin, yes, or you've turned from who God calls you to be. Then you see Christ on the cross dying for your sin. You see the empty tomb where he rose again, defeating death. You say, I believe he did that for me. I'm receiving that. That punishment that was meant for me, he took it. I believe he did that for me. He rose again. I believe he did that. So I, I believe that Christ is both my Savior and now my Lord. And I give my life to him. It's that simple. I'm a Christian, you confess, then you turn. You say, God, God, show me how to live as a stranger and an alien for your glory today. You've got situations in your life. You can see them, I don't need, you know, I don't need to call them out. I don't know them, you do. God, I'm living for your glory today, show me how. Father, that's our prayer. Help us, Father, as clumsily as we do it to not separate and insulate ourselves at the same time to not assimilate, but to live faithfully honoring you, to engage and and pray for the people around us who desperately need the hope of Christ. Help us to that end, Father. We love you. We worship you. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.